You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. You cannot follow Jesus alone. That's just a fact. Now, it's a comforting fact, and it's a terrifying fact at the same time. It's comforting because it means that we're never alone, that we're always in the company of people who have committed themselves to love you. But it's terrifying because, well, these are the people, right? I mean, look around the room. This is us. Uh, these people are people just like you. Our lives inside are as messy as your life is inside as well. But when we follow Jesus together, something wonderful happens. We're going to see this today as we look at one of the Bible's great role models, a hero of the faith. Her name is Ruth. Let's pull out our Bibles and uh, look at the two readings that we have this morning. One is from Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Uh, you'll find that on page 212. Ruth is sort of hard to find there. It's after Judges, the early part of the Old Testament. Uh, if you're able, uh, please stand and, and uh, read this Word of God together with me. Ruth, chapter 4. Verses 13, we'll stop there just short of the end, verse 17. When, I'm, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now let's turn to the right uh, to Matthew chapter 19. You're looking at page 800 if you're in the Pew Bible. And here we just read one verse, but the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. You might keep your finger in both these texts as we refer to them later. Are you ready? For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And this is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Mother of a high school senior was worried about her son as he went on to college, and so she wrote a letter to the president of the university, and she wrote this, Dear sir, my son has been accepted for admission to your college, and soon he'll be leaving me. I'm writing to ask you that you give your personal attention to the selection of his roommate. I want to be sure his roommate's not the kind of person who uses foul language or tells off-color jokes, smokes, drinks, or chases after girls. I hope you understand why I'm appealing to you directly. You see, this is his first time, the first time my son will be away from home, except for his three years in the Marine Corps. <laughs> oh, Mom. Who do we hang out with? 
Well, uh, this, these two texts are really about what happens uh, when we hang out uh, together. Uh, Ruth is hanging out with Israelites. Now, Ruth is not an Israelite. It's quite surprising that we should find her in the Bible. And something amazing happens. Did you notice in that text? She becomes the great-grandmother of King David, a Moabitess. Amazing. Look what happens. And at the same time, Jesus has this strange promise he makes in which he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there among you. Look what happens. Jesus is present. I think in, this, in some way, these two passages make to us the same promise. That is that when we embrace God's people, we experience God's presence. Now, let me give you just a quick overview of the story of Ruth. You may not have read this story. I want to encourage you to read it. It's one of the most beautifully written pieces of ancient uh, literature. Ruth lived in the 12th century B.C. She lived in a place called Moab, east of Israel. They were enemies frequently of Israel. She happens to marry an Israelite because the man she married was a displaced person, we would, we would call him today. He has to flee his homeland because there's a famine. Uh, his father loses the farm, and they're in economic distress. They come to Moab and uh, meet, they, they meet uh, Ruth, and Ruth marries this man. Well, tragedy strikes again on this family, and the man dies. His father dies, and so Ruth is left just with her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, decides to go back to Israel, invites these two young women to come with, and then changes her mind, says, no, you stay here. Go and remarry someone in your native land. But Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. She follows Naomi back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, And uh, there they uh, meet a man named Boaz. Ruth commits herself to Boaz, uh, an Israelite. And uh, because she does that and Boaz commits himself to her, uh, then Naomi finds her land, which had been lost, her husband's land, which had been lost, is restored to her. And Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David. It's a wonderful story, but I think there's an argument to be made for the church here. Now, I understand that this argument is not much heard uh, today. Many people are just absolutely turned off by the church, and they're tuning out. We say today, you know, I'm into Jesus, but I'm not into institutional religion, or uh, nature is my church, particularly this time of year. Um, Many of us have been hurt by the church, and really, we could have a moment of silence for that. Many of us have been deeply hurt. Uh, by the church. And yet, uh, the church is something that Jesus very much cares about. I know it's become popular for pastors to gain a following by speaking against the church. I'm here to say, is the church perfect? No. Are we saved by the church? No. But Jesus himself says, where two or three are gathered together, I will be there. Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew also says, I will build my church And when we say the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the church. Now, this is not an easy thing to confess. Henry Nouwen writes, often it seems harder to believe in the church than to believe in God. But whenever we separate our belief in God from our belief in the church, we become unbelievers. God has given us the church as the place, Henry Nouwen, where God becomes God with us. That's the place. 
God has decided to become God with us, the church. And there it is again. When we embrace God's people, we experience God. There's a gift here. There's a gift here. When we participate in what Dr. King calls the beloved community, I would suggest to you that there are three gifts, and we'll see this in our passage. There's a new sociology. There's a new spirituality. And there's a new destiny. Let's look at that uh, together. The first gift of participating in the beloved community is a new sociology. The whole book of Ruth can be summarized in one word, and it's, it's a Hebrew word, so forgive me, but it's chesed, chesed. And it's oftentimes translated faithfulness, steadfast love, or kindness, chesed. I uh, would translate it this way. Basically, it's love with staying power. Hesed is love with staying power. Now, this is not love sentimentalized. It's not idealized. This is love that's gritty and gracious. It's love when it's hard to love. It's love when I don't want to love. It's love when I don't feel like loving. And the story of Ruth really begins the way it's written, where oftentimes our relationships end, which is when it gets hard. Things get desperately hard for Naomi and for Ruth. Ruth, Naomi says, I've changed my name to bitter. Things are so bad. I'm in crisis. And yet Ruth clings to Naomi. If you've got your text open, you might look at verse 14 of chapter 1. She clung... She clung to Naomi. That word there is the same word that Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 24 uses in speaking of marriage. A husband sh- uh, shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. This is covenant language. is making a commitment in the presence of God. And Ruth does that with Naomi. Things get hard and she doesn't turn away like we so often do. She turns towards and says, I am with you. And then we have this beautiful statement um, that's oftentimes read at our weddings, where Ruth says, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. What a beautiful expression of love. That's love with staying power. That's Chesed. Now, who says that anymore? <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard anyone say anything like that to you? God bless you if you have. You're a very lucky and rare uh, person. Who loves you like that? And who do you love like that? When things get hard, we so often move on. We move on to a new roommate. We move on to a new girlfriend. We move on to a new business associate. And because of that, we have what many people are calling today an epidemic of loneliness. We're like self-imposed, internally displaced persons. We live around people, but not necessarily with people. Laura Sessions Stepp, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, has written a book, and I think the title itself says a lot to me, Unhooked, How Young Women Pursue Sex, Delay Love, and Lose at Both. And she makes the argument that we are so focused today on our own pursuits, we don't have time for we, only me. And there's some truth to that. The last Surgeon General 
said that we have an epidemic of loneliness today, and he said, oh, shoot, and I didn't give, I didn't print out the quote of what he says, but he describes of all the things that he sees, it's not cardiac or pulmonary illness uh, that's most common in America, it is loneliness. He calls it a new pathology. That's strong language. So yet here in Ruth, this ancient book is pointing us, modern people, to a new way, a new sociology, love with staying power. It's not about uh, our own power or stubbornness. It's about God's power. Really, what Ruth is saying when she says this beautiful expression in verse 16, she's, she's articulating her, her, her faith. This is a conversion story for Ruth. She's moving from being a pagan to being an Israelite. She knows, though, that when you get the God, you get the people. When you get the people, you get the God. You can't separate these two things. And that's true for us, too. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come into a community. Take, for example, our covenant vow, the, the baptismal vow, where we are claimed by God in the waters of our baptism. Paul says we are baptized into Christ. That's our vertical relationship with God. But he also says you are baptized into one body. That's our horizontal relationship to one another. And this is a gift that we receive in the beloved community. The second gift that comes with participation in the beloved community is a new spirituality. This love with staying power, this chesed, is not just about human relationships. In fact, more primarily and basically, it's, it's about our relationship with God. The chesed is in the heart of God. It's a character quality of God. It's an attribute of God. Those who read the Bible know this, and Moses asks God to reveal himself to him and, and on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Uh, verse 6, a cloud passes and God reveals his glorious name to Moses. And he, here the word hesed is translated as steadfast love. And, uh, he, and God describes his steadfast love as gracious and forgiving to generation after generation. What, what God is really saying to Moses is, I love you with staying power. I, and I love my people that way. No matter what they do, I am their God. I may be angry. I may be profoundly disappointed. I may find myself heartbroken. But I'm always their God. And I'm always one who loves. This is the Old Testament God, by the way. He says, I'm a God of hesed. When I was a young man, new to faith, a student in college, I went to a fellowship group, which I didn't do very often initially, and I saw a pregnant student in that group, and it really made a, 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 an impact on me. I will never forget that, um, not just for the obvious reasons that, okay, people do get pregnant, uh, even our age, but more importantly, because I watched this community come around this young woman and the young man that she was with. Uh, this was a community that could tolerate, not just tolerate, but even love through brokenness. And here I was working so hard to hide my faults, to, to conceal my brokenness. I, I was hoping that, uh, that nobody would notice. In fact, I thought that was the basis of participation, that I'd be a part of this group only if nobody knew who I really was. And here it was out in the open, and it was so beautiful, and I thought, that's what I want. If this is the church, then sign me up. How liberating is grace and forgiveness. And this was the culture, and this is the culture. It's meant to be of a church. 
There's an interesting little thing that you read, you notice if you read this book closely. In chapter one, uh, uh, sorry, in chapter two, verse 12, Boaz speaks of God's grace for Ruth as God's wing over Ruth. God's wing, God's put his wing over you. And it's in verse 12 of chapter 2. And then moving forward in chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth, in a later scene, says to Boaz, would you put your wing over me? And it's translated cloak, but it's really, a, a, the, it's, the word is the same. It's a wing, and it's an expression of grace. And the point is that God's grace for Ruth is now to be embodied by Boaz in community. God's grace for us, becomes embodied, acted out, and lived, and fleshed in our relationships with one another. If God is a God of grace, then we are to be a community of grace. And I think you are, by the way. I get this wonderful letter recently, and thank you for the woman who allowed me to read this to you. I got permission. She writes this, you don't know me, uh, she's writing to me, my family is one of the many congregants that attend your church. We came to know you through another family in the church at the time when I had given up on being churched, like so many today. My son had been invited to join the Cub Scout troop that meets on Monday nights. There we met wonderful families that loved God, loved their church, and loved serving. Could it be that UPC was filled with these sorts of people, she writes. So we decided to give it a try and have been attending ever since. Our love of UPC has grown since then. We've been welcomed in, warts and all. We've started attending things like family camp, a small group of several, several scout families. Just this year, we've committed to attending Wednesday nights and to come to church on every Sunday, except soccer game days, you know the drill. She says, we are all in. We've been through the death of two additional family members, difficult times with children, business ups and downs, and all along, our friends and family from UPC have been there. And she gets really the heart of it for me. She says, I trust that my family can come to UPC without judgment for who we were and are now. That's the highest possible compliment, I believe, that you could be paid and that we could be paid here at UPC. And it's true. This is a culture of grace and forgiveness. And this is a new spirituality that becomes possible because of who Jesus is. Grace and forgiveness. Notice when Jesus is talking about two or three being gathered, the context of that is grace. Just back out, zoom out a little bit and read the verse that comes before. Jesus is talking about a shepherd who leaves 99 behind just to go get the one lost sheep. That's who we're after. And then read the next section. He's talking about forgiving seven times 70. In between, there's this little bit about what happens when somebody sins in this community? How do we absorb that? And, you know, some people think the emphasis is on kicking somebody out. The only way you can get kicked out of the church, that Jesus' Jesus's church, is by disclaiming forgiveness. That's the point he's making. And, and that's why it's so hard for Jesus' critics, the Pharisees, who see themselves as so righteous and are trying to create a community that's defined by self-righteousness. Jesus says, well, there's just no, this is not going to be a place for you in my community, if that's what you... Because my community is defined by forgiveness and by grace. This is the new spirituality of Jesus. The church is never to be defined by its virtue or by its proclamation, by its social activism. It's to be defined by grace and forgiveness, all how they love one another. John Updike once wrote, a company of believers is like a prison full of criminals. Their intimacy and solidarity are based on what about themselves they can least justify. 
Like, I don't really know how I got to the place where I did this if you're a criminal and I'm in jail. And as a believer, you go, I don't really know how he did this. He forgave me, and so I'm here. By the way, tolerance and forgiveness are not the same thing. Tolerance says nothing's wrong here. Forgiveness says something's wrong here, but you're loved anyways. And that's what draws us, and that's what transforms us when we get to know Jesus. Well, there's a third gift that we receive in the beloved community, and it's a new destiny. I really want you to get this because this is so attractive to me. Here's the way I'd say it. Notice how the story begins. The tragedy. There was, a, there was a man, there was a famine, and death. Notice how it ends. Celebration. The women of Bethlehem are pouring out into the streets, the neighbors, and they're celebrating together. What we see here is that this is a God who turns tragedy into destiny, and he does it through community. This solitary, poor outsider, this woman, will become foremother to the Son of God. Now, the, the old destiny, destiny in the old story would have gone like this. Uh, uh, tragedy? Uh, if you don't have a man in your life, then there's no land. And if you don't have land, then there's no security. And if you don't have security, then there's no future. Remember, this is a, a deeply traditional and patriarchal society that Ruth and Naomi are living in. But this narrative is subversive. This narrative really overturns the patriarchy of that. And I think that's what, part of what makes this so powerful is God's word. This is God saying no to that kind of patriarchy. The story begins with a man in tragedy, and it ends with a woman and women in celebration. And the hero of the story is a woman. Did you catch what you read in chapter 4, verse 14b? Your daughter is more to you than seven sons. Just take that seven is the number of infinity for the Hebrew mind. Just take that in. Your daughter is more to you than seven sons. That is powerful in the ancient world. There is a new destiny for women in this community. There is a new destiny for Ruth. Why? Not because Ruth is so impressive, although she is. It's really because what she does is create community. And God, it, it shows up in the community of faith. And when he does, history changes. We oftentimes think that community leads to conformity, but the truth is chesed releases individuality. You and I and all people have a tendency to take on the values of our culture. We begin to dress alike. Soon you'll be wearing blue robes, I promise you. We begin to eat alike. We begin to talk alike. You know, somebody goes on a semester abroad to Australia, and they come back saying mate all the time and no worries. You know, that's just human nature. We think alike the people around us. But conformity is driven by fear, the fear that I won't be accepted if I'm not like you. This is why hesed, or love with staying power, is so important to individuality. Actually, what happens when we come into hesed community is that we find we are loved. We do not have any fear anymore. We do not have to perform like everybody around us, and this releases our unique individuality. And that's what starts to create a new destiny for us individually. And the shared experience of that is what begins to change culture. There's a resistance to culture. There's a transformation of culture. There's new culture that's created and out of that, a new destiny. Think of just the 12 apostles and how difficult it was. Jesus really put a very different kind of people together in his followers, right? There was, there was the tax collector who was sympathized with the Romans, and then there were the, 
uh, zealots who wanted to, to kill Romans. Jesus says, let's put you together in the same community, right? Awkward, but this little community and others also transformed in a number of, short number of years, the Roman Empire. Or I think also the Clapham sect in Great Britain that brought an, helped bring an end to slavery or the confessing church movement that offered resistance to Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany or the Oxford, uh, uh, group that out of which AA came, and you know millions of people have been helped through their addiction. Or missionaries of charity founded by Mother Teresa, and now care for the poor around the world through these communities. And I, I wonder, what about the Kindred Project as we build relationships with one another and do the work of reconciliation in Seattle? How might that change culture and the destiny of our city? When we embrace God's people, we experience God's presence. So today, I'd like to invite you to give church a second chance. I know I'm preaching to the choir. Look, you're all here. I know there are some people on the radio, okay? There's some who are watching streaming service. And let me just say, I don't know what it looks like for you, but let's say if you're on the radio, how about this? Maybe the next step for you is to, is to come physically, you know, once in a while, maybe once a month or once a quarter to try to be here. Or if you come, you know, quarterly or every month, you know, how about doubling that? Maybe come twice a month or twice a quarter. Move towards the followers of Jesus. Perhaps forming a small group in your neighborhood or joining a small group would be a good next step for you. Maybe you're a person who's getting a lot from the church, but you haven't turned the corner to start giving at the church. You know, Naomi gave her reputation. Ruth gave service. Boaz gave his wealth. What is it that you have been given that you can give and share with us? We need your gifts. Well, we can't say we love Jesus if we don't love the church. Jesus is not giving up on the church. He knows all about our flaws. He knows better than you and I do, but he loves the church. He gives his life for the church. The church is his bride, he says. This is my beloved. You are my beloved. He clings to us, he makes covenant love to us, and he's staying with us. He's going to stay with us. And that's why Henry Nouwen says, it's in this community that we experience God with us. Wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, I will be there. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all we thank you for the beauty of your love and joyful communion there in heaven. And we thank you for not hoarding that, but breaking open the storehouses of heaven and through your Holy Spirit and through your Son, Jesus, drawing us up into that same communion, love, and joy. Thank you that you could do it with sinners. We don't know how that works, but we're just so grateful, and we pray that you'll give us these gifts this week. In Christ's name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.